Well, do keep your Bible open at Acts uh, chapter 14. And what we're seeing as we uh, progress through the book of Acts is a series of developing scenarios. And as we look at those scenarios, we begin to extract principles that uh, are true of the church in every age and that are true of the church today. And this evening I want to talk simply about three factors that are emerging from this reading we've had now. I'm giving you the points right at the very beginning. There's going to be no, no introduction, really. We're just going to jump right into the text because we have the Lord's Supper in a few moments. And we see an emerging pattern. We see an essential principle. And we see an enduring provision. First of all, we see an emerging pattern. The emerging pattern is that the apostles, as they go out to whatever area they go, go, first of all, to preach the gospel to people. They articulate clearly the gospel of Jesus, and almost invariably we discover that that word that they articulate has a negative reaction. There's a positive reaction as well, as we'll see later at the end of the chapter, but almost invariably the preaching of the word of God from the earliest days of the church precipitated a negative reaction from the crowds. And so, for example, we saw back in chapter 13 and verse 50 that some Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of a city to stir up persecution against the people of God, the, the church, the apostles, and they drove them out of their district and they were chased out of town. When they go to Iconium, we find that one of the results of the preaching is that it divided the people. Their preaching divided people. People had to make a decision. Were they for this new teaching or were they, for, were they against this new teaching? And in the beginning of this chapter, we discovered that there was an attempt by Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat the apostles and even to stone them. And yet in verses 5 to 7, they continued, we're told, to preach the gospel. No matter what happened to them, they were focused on the task and no matter what response they received, they got on with the job of getting the gospel out to them. And then last time we came to look at what happened at Lystra. They came to Lystra, they healed a man there. That immediately raised the interest of the crowd. People came around to find out what had occurred and they misread. The crowd misread what was going on and they interrupted the preaching and uh, before they could get to the punchline and try to make uh, Barnabas and Paul into their own local gods. In other words, they completely misread the situation, didn't listen for a full answer from the apostles, but were instead diverted into the default setting of their minds, that is, into the idolatry that they were steeped in. And they began uh, to try and and have pagan sacrifices. And in fact, we're told in verse 18 of the chapter that even though they tried to reason with them, the apostles barely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So what we're beginning to see is some responses. If you could just reflect on those. Some of them are obviously very negative. People wanting to stone people is not a positive reaction to the gospel. I haven't had that quite yet. I've had hate mail, but never quite stoning uh, as a result. Don't, don't put ideas into your head, but... but not, not yet. Uh, it was not that funny, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> Maybe you're just picturing the scene there for a moment. Uh, and then there's this response of division as people 
take sides. The gospel causes people to take sides, even in churches. You find people who are kind of, uh, who are Christians by name, but not by nature. They've not been born again, and they, the word of God forces people into taking sides. We find that the, the, the gospel is liable to misrepresentation and misunderstanding. People, what people do is they project onto it their own preconceived ideas, like these men in Lystra, who projected onto what was happening under the apostles, and, and they were reading in their own pagan insights and their own pagan understanding and background and experience. And uh, they were modifying what was being said and done by the apostles to fit into their pagan construct, their intellectual construct in their minds, and were responding accordingly. And then we come now to the passage we read this evening. We, they come from Antioch and Iconium, a uh, group of Jews come from there, and they stir up a crowd, uh, they persuade people to stone Paul, and that's exactly what they did. This time they go, they take the next step. It's not just a threat, not just mistreatment, not just talking about stoning. This time they actually get uh, Saul, Paul, and they stone him. And the result, it's the result, we're told in the passage, of rumblings of discontent and disbelief. They reach their nadir in the, the Jewish community of Antioch and Iconium. What we see are people there who are fueled by zeal we've seen before in the story. We've seen people like these before. It means Paul himself in his old days, before he became a Christian, was fueled by the same zeal for the law of Moses, a zeal that led him to persecute the church and led him to be responsible for the death and certainly the imprisonment of many within the church. What we see here is a declaration of war by these local people against the gospel and against the gospel's witnesses. And they stoned him. You, you and I can barely imagine what it must be to be stoned. These are not little pebbles being thrown at you. These are bricks, rocks being thrown at you. These are rocks that smash bones, tear flesh, cause pain, and eventually cause death. As Paul is enduring this, you can imagine that he's thinking back to a, an event once before when he'd observed someone being stoned to death. Stephen, Paul was there. He was looking on when this happened. He was approving of what went on. And now here is the Apostle Paul himself on the receiving end of the same venom and spite and zeal for the law of Moses that was shown back then when Stephen was killed. And it seemed as if, it seemed as if to those believers who came and gathered around the body of verse 20, it seemed as if Paul was dead. He was motionless, lifeless. I don't know if they were feeling for a pulse or if they knew to feel for a pulse, but they could see no sign of life. And they were as surprised as everybody else was when he rose up. He was almost resurrected. He rose up and he entered the city the next day, maybe he did die. Maybe he came very near to death. Maybe this is the moment in which he has a, a vision or a view of what eternity is like and he sees the reality of the afterlife. Certainly, we know that he had such a vision and such an insight, uh, which he shares with us in others of his writings. But here they gather around and he rises up. And what does he do? He goes right back into the city the next day and preaches there. So there's a pattern emerging here 
The pattern is the gospel is preached. The gospel causes division among people. The gospel stirs up misunderstanding and antagonism. The gospel leads to opposition to its truth. That is the pattern that's emerging. Because the gospel will advance in the world, but it will never advance in the world without the onslaught of the gates of hell. Jesus is building his church right outside the gates of hell. And this is still the case, that where we articulate the gospel to men and women, wherever it may be, it always provokes a reaction. Whenever you talk about Jesus, wherever you lift up a prayer request, whenever you honor the name of the Lord, then you will find sometimes that hostility is lying beneath the surface of even the most pleasant and nice person. Sometimes that hostility is overt, public, expressed in banning and burning and brutality. At other times that hostility is covert, it's muted, it's hidden beneath forced smiles and faint praise. But this kind of reaction is there. Now when you look at the book of Acts, what does this troubling of the church look like? It looks a bit like this. It's either evil insinuation or outright opposition or violent persecution or spiritual competition or theological deception. But try as hell will, you see. Try as hell will, it cannot keep a good man down. It cannot destroy the church of God. Paul's rising here is an indication to us that God is determined to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the result of this great uh, work that's been done and this terrible thing that has happened is that Paul goes and he sees people converted. Made, he makes many disciples uh, as he the next day leaves to go the 60-mile walk to Derby and there preach the gospel. He makes many disciples. It's the same verb as in Jesus' great commission to go and make disciples of all men. So here's this emerging pattern. And the pattern of hostility, preaching, hostility, reaction, division, and so on. But then secondly in the passage you notice there's an essential principle that's articulated by the apostle. If you look at verses 21 and 22, <clears throat> Paul and his friends uh, articulate this principle <clears throat> and it, it, it lies in a follow-up ministry in which they revisit the churches that they have served. Now each of these churches, you understand, constitutes an outpost of the kingdom of God. In each of these churches there were people who followed Jesus and they were gathering together. They gathered together. That's the hallmark of a church. We don't live our Christian lives on our own, watching the TV screen or listening to the radio or on the internet. We have to live in community. We live with people. We gather with the people of God. They were gathered together. Because these little assemblies that he was visiting, these little churches that Paul was going to, were like embassies of heaven. They were the kind of territory of heaven there in a foreign environment, in an alien location. And these people were engaged to be the Lord's. They had been justified by faith through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And here is the apostle now, having brought them to faith by his preaching, revisiting them again, 
and he has a threefold agenda. He is strengthening the souls of the disciples. Do you notice that? That's the first phrase. He goes there strengthening the souls of the disciples. Why is he doing this? It's because he realizes how fragile our souls are. He realizes how fragile our, our hold on God is. He realizes that even those who have come to faith recently are going to be tempted, they're going to be confronted with the enemy who wants to draw them away from a vital living faith and to destroy their faith altogether. Because believers, no matter where you are in your Christian journey, you are susceptible to falling, falling away from being pulled away from that vital soul engagement with the Lord. I talk about a soul engagement. I mean, not simply a kind of intellectual engagement with God. In fact, your intellectual engagement with God may be at this moment in your journey being challenged by questions of one kind or another or doubts of one kind or another. But I'm talking about the soul engagement, the engagement of the heart and soul in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That can often be challenged as we go on in our Christian lives. And our souls need to be strengthened. They need to be toughened if we're going to survive. And what is it that strengthens and toughens the soul of the believer in the midst of what is going to come? And we're going to see what's going to come in a moment. Why do our souls need toughened? It's because of what's going to happen. Just as your muscles need strengthened if you're going to go on a long journey or if you're going to be engaged in lifting heavy weights, so your soul needs toughened. How does that happen? It happens when you dig down deep into God. When you dig down deep into God's Word and derive the powers, the supplies of strength that God has, has hidden there, the power of the Word of God, the power of God for the salvation and the strengthening of His people. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples. second thing He wanted to do, in light of what was coming, is to encourage them to continue in the faith. So if you like, he's concerned for the subjective, personal, inward element of what it is to be a Christian, but he's also concerned about something else that's just as important, absolutely vital. He's here talking, do you know, it's not about their faith in God, but about the faith, that is the faith, the body of doctrine, the things that are believed by the Christian, those things. What is called elsewhere in the New Testament, the faith once for, for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. That body of truth, uh, which is the anchor of our lives. He sees, you see, that that faith, our grip on that faith, that doctrine, that word, needs to be strengthened and encouraged. We need to continue on in what we've learned uh, that's what Jesus said in John chapter 8. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You're truly my disciples. We need to go on in the faith that we have learned from God. Now, the apostle does this. Why? One of the things we realize when we start reading Paul's letters is that he understood that believers are always vulnerable in times of pressure and indeed, throughout this period that we call the last days in which we live, they're always vulnerable to false teaching. And we're always prone to the forgetting 
of the truth that we have been taught. The early Christian teachers knew that there would be a final Antichrist. At the end of history, there would be the Antichrist. But they also understood that in the period between Jesus and the coming of that final Antichrist, there would be many Antichrists who have gone out into the world. And one of the things that characterizes the Antichrist, whether it's the Antichrist or the many Antichrists that we encounter in our Christian lives, but one of the hallmarks of the Antichrist movement is fundamentally false doctrine. The Antichrist is a deceiver. This is something you see in, in uh, the book of Revelation, for example, in chapter 12, when uh, there is this fallen angel, the devil, Satan, the dragon, and uh, one of the things the dragon does is that he is the accuser of the brethren. He's called the devil and Satan. He goes out into the world and he goes out specifically, we're told, to deceive the people of God. To deceive the people of God. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is aware of and what the New Testament teaches is that it is the focus of the interest of the powers of hell to deceive not the world, it's already got the world deceived, but it is their focus to deceive the very elect of God. To sow the seeds of disinformation in our minds. To distort the truth we already understand. To divert us from that faith that has been once delivered to the saint. Jesus taught this when he said that Satan is always ready to pounce and snatch away the pure word of God. So what's Paul doing here? He's urging them to remain in the faith that had been taught. That's why over and over again in Paul's letters he goes back to these people or he writes back to these people and he says, you remember what you were taught. I call to your memory what you were taught. I remind you of what you were taught. Let me say again what I said to you before, he says. And then he tells them what he said before. He tells them what he's going to say. He tells them what he said. And then he repeats himself to make sure they get the message that he's trying to communicate to them. Why does he do that? Because we have all excellent forgetteries. We forget what he has taught us. We forget the Word of God. We forget the lessons we've learned. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. And I've been a Christian for a very long time. You forget the stuff you learned five years, ten years, twenty years ago. You forget it. And we need to be brought to remember it. And of course, we're under the pressure. We're under pressure from false teaching and from the Antichrist system and movement that is all around us, the organized kingdom of Antichrist in which we live our lives. We're constantly trying to undermine what we believe. We hear it from the world all the time. Sometimes it's put in euphemisms that are thrown at us. Think for yourself. Think outside the box. Become your own person. You, you shouldn't be tied to the traditions of the past. Jettison the scriptural truth in favor of new ideas or philosophies or doctrines or some new perspective or whatever it may be, whatever it is that is new that you haven't seen yet. Nobody else has seen it, but we've seen it. All of these things that come along to divert the people of God. Paul realized these Christians needed to be brought back to the faith and they need encouraged to stay on course, holding on to the truth. And then the third thing they needed was what Paul then goes. And here's the climax. This is why they needed strengthened in their soul. 
This is why they needed to continue in the faith they'd received. It's because they were saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the principle. This is the essential principle we have to learn. You see what Paul's doing here? He's not offering them pie in the sky when you die. This is no kind of uh, euphemizing away of what the Christian life is about. He's not saying, you know, you come follow Jesus and everything's going to go very well for you. It's going to be a bed of roses. Well, it may be a bed of roses, but the thorns are going to be there as well. And that's not very comfortable. When Paul writes, for example, one of his earliest letters to the Thessalonians, he, he says this, he writes this to them, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. They knew that because he taught them that. For when we were with you, he says, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul wants you to know, if you're going to follow Jesus, there will be trouble ahead. I won't sing the rest of it. But there you go, there will be trouble ahead. These early Christians understood that the Messiah himself would have to undergo tribulation before entering his glory. And the Lord Jesus explicitly linked his suffering with their suffering, his rejection with their rejection. Where does this idea of tribulation come from? Well, you read it first really clearly in the book of Daniel. There Daniel is looking forward to these last days that have been described in the book of Acts. And he says in these last days there will come a time of trouble, a tribulation that has never been seen since there was a nation up to that time. And he describes this time of great tribulation. It's going to climax, he says, Daniel says, in the resurrection in the last day. A resurrection from the dead. A resurrection of the righteous and the wicked on the last day. But leading up to that last day, there's going to be a time of great tribulation. Great not because of its intensity. Great because of its length. It's going to last a long time. This tribulation. And this tribulation is this period we find ourselves in. It is the last days. Jesus taught this in John's Gospel. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, so the world hates you. And again, in John 16, they will put you out of synagogues, and the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's doing an offering to God. And John 16:33, in the world you will have tribulation. Now what does this end times tribulation that we're in look like today? It doesn't necessarily have to look like physical persecution. The great hallmark of this end times trouble, as you see it in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, is this, that efforts are made by hell to divert the people of God from the truth of God. Paul makes this very clear when he's writing to Timothy and saying to Timothy that in the last days, people will not be lovers of truth. They will be swept here and there by every wind of doctrine. 
Because that's what the powers of darkness want. They want to undermine the truth that is in the church. They want to destroy the church by destroying the truth. That's what it means to live in the last days. And that's primarily what the persecution is about. Deception and distortion of the gospel. Jesus talked about false prophets, false apostles. Paul speaks of doctrines of demons disturbing the church, scattering the sheep, deceiving the elect. Tribulation today may take the form of harsh persecution, but mostly it will take the form of deception because the enemy of our souls is the devil and Satan, and he is a deceiver and a liar from the very beginning. And lies pour out of him. You see a river of lies flowing in, in Revelation chapter 12 as, as the lid of hell is opened up and the evil spirits and the evil powers of darkness pour out into the world. This is no, this is no kind of uh, uh, science fiction stuff. This, this is a, the powers of darkness are prevalent in the pulpits, dressed up in Knights Brooks Brothers' jackets, telling people the way to hell rather than the way to heaven. False doctrine, false teaching in the church is part of the tribulation of this present age. And it's going on all the time. Christians in Muslim lands, they're under pressure, physical persecution, and they're also under pressure to modify their understanding of the gospel to suit the pressures of Islam. Tribulation. Here in our own country, the prevalence of scientific materialism and atheistic materialism pressurize us to reinvent our understanding of the Bible to suit that community. Tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation. And what does God do about that? Here's our third point. Our third point is that there's now an enduring provision that God makes for the church in the meantime. You see, there is a direct link between the principle we've just noticed that there is tribulation and what Paul does for the churches. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. From the earliest days in Acts, we've seen the Christians saw themselves as the new and true Israel of God. Because of their connection to Jesus the Messiah, Ever since the time of the Exodus, there had been elders provided to bring leadership to Israel. And now, following the model of old Israel, new Israel has elders and rulers in the church. Now, Luke has a habit of introducing things out of sync with their historical or chronological introduction in the church. We know that there were already elders in the churches. We know that because... In chapter 15, we're going to find what's happening back in Jerusalem. And back in Jerusalem, the elders are going to lead a great meeting that's going to be held there, chapter 15. But they're introduced here at this point in order that the principle that has just been expounded and the issue that is going to be raised in the next section, chapter 15 as we know it, in our New Testament, is seen in perspective. To a struggling church whose people's souls need strengthened, who need encouraged to continue in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, 
and who need to understand the principle that tribulation is a reality right now and that the church is exposed to danger, God's provision for the church are the elders who will teach the church the truth, who will strengthen the souls of its people, who will reiterate the principles that have been established in the Bible and that will deal with a manifestation of that which is just about to turn up in chapter 15 when false teaching comes into the church and the elders in Jerusalem have to deal with it as a leadership there. So that's the context. Eldership is introduced in Acts, not chronologically, but in this context by Luke, so that you're thinking about strengthening the souls of believers, encouraging them to continue in the faith, in the doctrine, in the persecution and tribulation that is coming. That's where they're appointed to strengthen and encourage believers in their stand for God. A couple of observations about the appointment of elders you may just be interested in as we go through it. But the word to appoint here indicates to stretch out your hand, which does not mean a kind of charismatic hand-waving, that kind of thing. It's to stretch out your hand by way of voting for something or someone. And uh, that's an interesting thing. It seems that the elders were chosen by the people and then were appointed by the apostles in much the same way as we do it today. The elders are chosen by the people and appointed by the, their fellow elders. And the people who are chosen are people that have obviously been gifted by the Lord Jesus. So we could put the, we could put the order like this. Jesus has gifted some people. The church recognizes those gifts and elects them, and their fellow elders then appoint them to the role of elder within the church. And that's an important thing because the appointment of officers in the church is intended to underline that these people come from within the body of the church itself. These are not a super spiritual elite group. These are not people who are distinct from, separate from, kind of clergy status, different from the laity. They come from within the church body and family itself. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, because they are chosen by the church and then appointed to this office, they are then bound by the teaching of Scripture, and they are accountable to and answerable to Christ himself. Their loyalty is not to the people who voted them in. Their loyalty then is principally to the King and Lord of the church, Jesus, the Bishop of our souls. Now the appointment of these offices then, get back to the text, has particular relevance to the conditions of the time. And I'm persuaded that the appointment of elders in the church is due in part to this latter-day tribulation of false teaching. I want to read from Greg Beale, who writes this. On the one hand, elders or bishops are needed in order to maintain the doctrinal purity of the covenant community, which is always either being influenced by or threatened from false te the infiltra infiltration of fifth columnist movements. The devil wants to insinuate, if you will, into the church false teaching. On the other hand, such an ecclesiastical authority structure ensured the Christian community that it was continuing 
in the truth and life of the kingdom, which would enable it then to be strong in accomplishing its mission of witness to the world. There you have it. So when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says to Timothy, Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. That's your job. Doctrine that arises from speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And the reason he's anxious about this is because some people, he says, have already made shipwreck of their faith. And he warns Timothy, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Therefore hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that you might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, here's the role of the elders, defending, declaring, disseminating the gospel to the world. That's their role. It highlights the mission, light-bearing mission of the new Israel, the church, to the world, declaring, defending, disseminating the gospel in the midst of a tribulation, period of tribulation. So God has made this enduring provision for the church until Jesus comes, when their jobs will be redundant once and for all. And we long for that day when we're redundant and get something else to do. Well, as we come to the end of the passage, we have this report then that the apostle gives as he reflects on what God has done. He arrives with the church at Antioch who are gathered together. He reports to them and declares to them all that God has done with them and how he has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It's a beautiful report of a beautiful work of God. No matter what they'd suffered, no matter how well they'd proclaimed the gospel, in the end it was God's work. The Word did the work of God. God was in the Word that they proclaimed. They could not persuade people to become Christians, though they tried to persuade people. The Holy Spirit does that job. He draws people to himself. And I have no doubt that the reason why you have been, in, you have been placed where you've been placed in your life is that God has put you there so that you as a living, breathing, obeying Christian person can be an example and a model and, an, and make an impression for Jesus where you are. You almost don't need to say anything. Those people you live beside, work beside, just by your being there, you are by being there a witness to the reality of Christ. This church, just by being here, Sunday by Sunday as we gather together, is a witness to the reality of another world. And when people ask you the question, well, you tell them a reason for the hope that you have. It's very simple, straightforward, because you don't believe that this life is all there is. You believe that Jesus is alive from the dead, that he's been raised from the dead, that he lives. Let them do with that what they will. You've discharged your responsibility. You're not responsible for bringing people to faith. You're responsible for pointing people to Jesus. God does the bringing of people to faith. God has opened a door to the Gentiles. He has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What he started doing back then, he's doing today, this day. Somebody in this room this evening, you for the very first time this evening, may find the door of your heart swinging open to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not be able to explain it or articulate it, 
But this evening, as you sit in this place, and in a moment as we gather around this table and we take these elements that point us to Him and help our hearts to engage with Him, and as you see people take these things personally and eat bread and drink from a cup, what you are seeing illustrated is that this Jesus is for us individually. He is for us personally. He is for us as those who have come to trust Him and believe in Him. He is for us. He has engaged our hearts to His heart. And He is ours. He is ours. And He can be yours. We want you to see the gospel preached to you in a moment as we gather around this table. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit you would please tonight open our hearts and minds to the Lord Jesus. And now as we, in a moment, will gather around this table, we ask that we may do so with great joy to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith and to celebrate all that he has done for us, to embrace him again and to be strengthened by this visible sacrament as we have been strengthened by the Word of God to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.